Welcome to another episode of the Existential Hope podcast. I'm Beatrice Erkus and I'm the co-host of the podcast together with Alison Dittman. Today we're joined by Trent McConaughey. Trent is a coder whose early fascination with computers and AI led him to start the company Ocean Protocol, where he works to revolutionize the decentralized data market. Beyond that, he also has collaborated with the Foresight Institute on crafting potential maps of the future of different technological areas called tech trees. So Trent is really a visionary, which is why we really wanted to have him on the podcast and we we're very happy he came on. He discussed, among other things, AI, tech trees, blockchain, existential hope, of course. And so let's just dive into this episode with Trent McConaughey. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Facet's Existential Hope podcast series. I'm really happy to have Trent here today. We have quite an interesting and collabor- collaboratory history that I just, I think, again, reminded myself when we met at Decide Day uh, in Paris, which was a few weeks ago. And basically, I got super inspired when I read some of your Medium articles. You were really laying out this long-term map for a potential very ambitious and positive future for our universe, starting with pretty much solving individual bits and pieces that we need to get around to today all the way out into Tyson's years and beyond. So I got super inspired, reached out to you. And this map really led to a collaboration where we have started developing individual versions of maps of potential futures. At Foresight, it resulted in the TechTree project by which we mapped specific areas. And you have this whole kind of like more holistic setting of how can different technological areas actually fit in with each other to create a wonderful future. But before we dive into all of this, perhaps you would like to introduce yourself in a few words, like three minutes of your life history and what makes you the person that you are today. Because apart from this positive future stuff, you do a lot of other projects too that are really interesting and that I think we can at least let people know so we can dig deeper into some of them as we go along. So welcome, Trent. Thanks a lot for coming. Thanks for having me. As always, a pleasure to be here and in another engaging, exciting foresight event. And I haven't done one of these podcasts yet, so quite excited for this. So overall, a bit of background. I was raised on a farm in rural Canada, shoveling pig manure and driving grain trucks by day and hacking computers by night. My father, the farmer, bought me a computer at a very young age. So instead of learning piano to get good at math, to get good at computers, I went straight to computers. (laughs) And that led to doing an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering and computer science, two degrees actually side by side. And with that, I managed to get a job working for the Canadian government hacking AI. On my resume, I showed that I was hacking AI because I was for fun. So then I got to work on audio radar classification, classification of audio radar signals more. And I couldn't believe that someone would pay me to work on AI full time. This was 97, 98. And I loved it. And then I went back to do my final year design in engineering undergrad and did AI for automatic creativity, like creative design, AI powered creative design of analog circuits. Drawing on my electrical engineering knowledge, my my recently improved AI knowledge and turned that into a company. So launched that company around automatic creative design of analog circuits and built that up. And it was acquired four years later. So this was 2004. So that was a great adventure. My first startup, we were young and naive and we raised money in, in the dot-com boom and we felt the pain in the dot-com bust, but it was great fun. And from that, I started two projects, another company doing AI also for chip design, but instead of automatic creative design, it was more on the verification side, large-scale verification, things like, is this it's the yield of this memory bit cell one in a billion or 1.1 in a billion and other stuff like that. 
And at the same time, deciding to do thing, two things at once full-time, which is not recommended, did a PhD out of K living in Belgium, going back to the automated creative design with AI, focusing on analog circuits to really try to get awesome designs there. So I did both those. I came out of the other end of those with a PhD and the second startup was doing well, got profitable all that. So that led me into exploring other ideas. And I've always been a big nerd, following many things, long-time interest in brain-computer interfaces, for example, hacking on those since the 90s, following VR and AI and VR and all this stuff. And in 2010, one of my nerd friends shared with me this Bitcoin thing. And I immediately became a very common topic of conversation among me and my friends. Bought, bought Bitcoin in 2011, lost those keys in 2013, found those keys in 2022. Interesting ups and downs there too. But basically what that led to is in 2013, my wife, who's a professional art creator, works at the Louvre, all this, we were hanging out one day and she talked about the problem of how do you collect digital art? That led us to basically do solving the problem by saying, hey, you know, what if you could own digital art the way that you can own Bitcoin? And that led us to doing basically NFTs on Bitcoin back in 2013, 2014. And that, we were too early. NFTs finally took off in 2021. So what is that, eight years too early? So along the way, we pivoted to decentralized databases. And by 2017, I was really missing my work in AI. I always loved AI. I think it's one of these general purpose technologies that is a really big lever to change and improve the world. And with my first two companies, I saw how I made my own small dent in the universe, helping to drive Moore's Law with AI, all that. So I'm, I was missing that. And I asked the question, what can, how can blockchains help AI? And turns out there was a lot of really interesting answers. One of the big ones was help use blockchain to get data into the hands of AI researchers. And with that, specifically decentralized data markets. So that's what we built. And that's Ocean Protocol for decentralized data markets and more generally decentralized access control of data. So that's been my day job, my full-time job for uh, since 2017. And along the way, I have side projects that I try to keep less than 5% of my time because I really, while I have vision, I like to execute. Among the other projects, I've helped Estonia, I advise them on e-residency. I have a, I'm constantly monitoring BCI and went to how I might make a ding there and getting increasingly worried about AI superintelligence, worried about AI safety, missing the ball of, we can't really slow it down, so what can we do? So I'd really like to see human superintelligence. So how can I catalyze that? I believe BCI is the answer. I can get into that later. And also some climate change ideas. I have some I have a lot of crazy ideas from spending time in the world of AI and blockchain and how they intersect token engineering and leveraging the market economies and all this. So that's where I sp spend a lot of my time and thinking. And yeah, day by day, I'm a builder. I write code, all that. I think I was coding for 10 or 12 hours today. So that's where I like to spend my time, but always thinking with a big picture. And then of course, with the map, that's maybe a really a good summary of it is how do you choose what to work on next? How do you know that it might possibly make a ding in the universe, right? where it's solving the problem of AI risk, if you call it that. I like to think of it as human transcendence. Or how do, how do we get to, be, to create Dyson spheres? And what are the steps in between that, right? Does Mars matter? All of this. And, then, and that's because it's easier to predict the far-out future than the near-term future. But once you've predicted the far-out future, you simply interpolate. And interpolation is a lot easier than extrapolation. With that, I'll stop. And yeah, back to you, Alison. Okay, I think you've already touched on a lot of the individual topics that I want to dive in deep in a second, but maybe we'll just leave the scene for this other component that's still missing, which is the map. And so maybe could you describe in a little bit like what got you 
Yeah, what could you start it with writing Starships and Tokens or aka the map, which is available on Medium and which I just posted also in the chat and in which I once stumbled upon and I was like, oh, this is very much echoing many of the things that Foresight is building towards. And so could you just describe a little bit like a brief summary of this Medium post? It's really well worth reading, but maybe you can just do just enough to get people interested in actually doing a deep dive. Sure. So maybe I'll use a current topic. If you look at the Google Trends search for superconductivity, it just spiked this last week, right? Why is that? These researchers in Korea announced that they had cracked it, room temperature, low pressure super, superconductivity. And so people are like, I've never really thought about that. I'm searching. And then they're starting, everyone's starting to realize, oh, wow, if we've really cracked that, it is a really big deal because it unlocks not just low energy transmission from one place to another, a better power grid, but it also makes fusion more efficient and storage of energy more efficient and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's a really big deal. Let's say then put yourself in the shoes of a physics undergrad. You're just finishing your undergrad and you're, you're thinking about doing a PhD. And you're thinking about, should I do fusion or should I do superconductivity or some grand unified theory? What should I work on? But you only have a bit of a picture of what the impact of each thing could be. You have a bit of an idea from what your professors might have told you or what you read in books by Asimov or otherwise. But what if there was something that was much more clear about, hey, if we crack room temperature superconductivity, then it will unlock X and Y and Z and A and B and C. And that information is curated well in a way that sort of the world agrees upon, similar to Wikipedia. And once you crack, say, super efficient energy storage, what does that unlock? And then once you crack super, and then X, Y, Z, A, B, C, right? So it's one thing can lead to another, can lead to another. Or working backwards, things like, how do we get to the point of exploring the cosmos? What do we need before that? And Elon has taken a subset of that and said, it would be great to have settled Mars because it helps to reduce risk to humanity. To get there, we need to work backwards. Okay, we need to get that first person to Mars. Before that, we need to uh, make it cheap enough to get to Mars. Before that, we need to, how do we get cheap enough? It's all about getting atoms from Earth into atoms in space. And for that, we need 10x or more cheaper spaceflight, therefore best solution, reusable rockets. So that's working backwards. So you can work forwards, work backwards. And any technologist or entrepreneur or VC is actually thinking about how all these things relate, but there's no sort of map of this that's really laid out. But what if there was? And so I've been thinking about this myself. I mentioned earlier, I've been thinking a long time about brain-computer interfaces, for example. In the early 2000s, I was playing hacking on them and even before. And at the time I hacked on them and said, yeah, they're not ready yet. The noise is too high compared to the signal have to wait. And every five years, I would hack again and play with it. It's so not there yet. But I realized I had this implicit model in my head of some things have to be get far enough along. And still, it's really hard to time things. I acknowledge that, like my first project with NFTs several years too early. But overall, I had a bit of a map, but it was fuzzy. But then thinking about civilization, thinking about this problem, realizing that a lot of people had it, I said, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to draw this out and see what I have. So I said, okay, I know blockchain well. So what does that little sort of graph look like? This decentralized acyclic graph. You can even call it, even not necessarily acyclic, it could be have cycles, but call it acyclic and call it a tree if you want, but there's some more relations than that. So then I drew that out and things like, okay, how do we get truly a world computer? There was, Ethereum had been using that phrasing at the time. And you really, you need really great decentralized storage and you need really great secure contracts. You need really great high, large scale compute. You need really great communication. All of those need to be decentralized leading into this overall world computer. So we haven't even hit all of those yet, but we're getting there bit by bit with things like Filecoin and Ethereum and, and, and more. And then I looked at other groups of technology too. What about AI and the risks of AI? AI taking all the jobs, AI superintelligence, if that's a risk or not. What can we do about it? Where will it take us? Exploring the cosmos, 
climate change, all of this, right? And then I drew those graphs out individually, and I'm like, how do these link? And it turns out that there was some really interesting, surprising links. So that's what became my post, the heart of it. And then I also realized that, hey, once you have this, if you're a VC, uh, that there's this thing three steps ahead, maybe say super conductivity at room temperature, that'd be really amazing if we hit that. Here's the steps to get there, A, B, C. Okay, let's fund those. So that's very interesting from a VC perspective or running open source projects, whatever. Putting this out there in a way like Wikipedia that the whole world can contribute to and add to, but also if there was means for funding projects, those three steps before superconductivity could be very interesting and valuable. And if people have good context into what those are, great. And I also see that putting money in is probably the best curation signal of all. It's really hard to cheat. It's really hard to fake. So curation always matters in Wikipedia, in Twitter, in whatever. And amount of funds going into a given project is a very good curation signal towards the importance of something. So yeah, that's what the map is about. I published it. And then I gave some talks on it back in 2016, 2017. I've used that as my North Star ever since personally. I share it with friends now and then. Um, and then, yeah, when I met Allison a few years ago, I shared this sort of idea with her as well. And we, she had read the blog post. We were, and it was always my dream to somehow connect to Foresight because I saw that Foresight is really probably the best organization on the planet to you to run with this idea. So I'm really happy that connection that we made that connection. And then I think we both jumped at the opportunity to turn it into a collaboration to make it real. And that's what's been happening. Wonderful. Thank you. Are you okay with us diving into maybe a few of the bits on the map just to provide like a little bit perhaps more color on a few of the areas that you care a lot about? One of them, we could maybe dive into the AI one. We could dive into the BCI one. We could maybe even dive into the AI, into the energy climate one if you want to. But do you want to start with the, perhaps with the, with the AI one in particular, like how AI may first perhaps lead to loss of jobs and what could possibly be done about it? Right. Yeah. Overall, yeah. So AI keeps getting more and more powerful. I've been working on it since the late 90s. And I mean, AI has been a phrase since the 50s or even 40s, depending who you ask, uh, but definitely an idea since the late 50s and with various strands and ideas of how to approach it, the connectionist neural network, et cetera, approach versus the expert system, symbolic logic, hard rules approach. Um, and over the years, they intertwine and there's a lot of other related stuff too. statistics got more, much more important, et cetera. And it had its ups and downs and winters every, say, 15 or 20 years, there was an AI winter, like a boom bust cycle. Crypto's had that too, except it speed ran it every four years instead of every 15 or 20 years. And I got in the 90s when it was mostly in still a winter, but there was sparks of life of potential applications here and there. And I was quite excited by its use for creativity. And I discovered this wonderful community of genetic programming researchers that, you know, to, to this day, they're one of my favorite research communities out there. Super creative stuff. And they were, yeah, applying genetic programming to all sorts of creative design. It was super inspiring. Even to this day, that set of papers from the late 90s, that next 10 years was just magical. And I was participating in that field at the same time as going after AI for chip design. And what I've seen in the last couple of years is the rest of the world has discovered that you can use AI for creative design. And it's not a bad thing. It's there. It's actually quite exciting. And in the world of CAD, computer-aided design, so you're using AI as this assistant to help you do your design to, to design super complex computer chips or complicated, I should say. Where if you've got this thing with 10 billion parts, 10 billion transistors, how can a team of five people possibly design and ship it in three months? Because they do. And the answer is AI handles the complexity. And But, you know, computer-aided design, it's this philosophy of, well, Copilot as GitHub and others now market it. So we're seeing that now too, where AI is helping people to design things. And it's to me, it's okay. I've been expecting that to happen. Things that I think of often end up in mainstream five or 20 years later. 
And it's not just me. It's I get inspired by the sci-fi writers and stuff too, heavily. So it's check that just happened. Check that just happened. And for the last couple of years, it's like check that just happened. The mainstream realized that AI can apply to everything around creative design, et cetera. And it's not necessarily scary there. But at the same time, we have humanoid robots coming. So you have AIs that can fit into every human space and interoperate there and do it without fuss, potentially a lot cheaper, et cetera. And to do a lot of the cognitive tasks too that we've traditionally done. And will it take the jobs or not? That's a lot of people debate over that. I see that it's probably inevitable if they are cheaper, faster, better across the board. And there's different arguments. Oh, they have emotion, they have this. This is all happening too, right? It just happens to be a different substrate. But we, rather than saying it's never going to happen, never going to happen, we should say for the possibility that it does, and maybe probability, maybe at least 10%, maybe as high as 90%, who knows, that it does take the jobs, what then, right? And what do you do about it? And to me, there's been a lot of proposals over the years, but a universal basic income is probably the most practical thing. And of course, the big holding back thing holding back there is people often see that there's a coupling between self-actualization and their job. But if you're working at McDonald's or some even medium level accounting job that you don't really love at all, you're just doing it to make money to pay the bills. You're happy if you can pay to feed your family and then pursue other things that you actually truly are passionate about. There's actually only really a small fraction of humanity that actually is able to pursue their to pursue self-actualization, which is too bad. For the rest of the people, it's not such a bad thing if you can actually have the space to pursue self-actualization while UBI pays for your means of living. And if somehow you can ha have your means of living paid for via UBI, why stop at basic? Go up Maslow's hierarchy, not just food, clothing, shelter, and water, but also education and healthcare. And go all the way up to the top of the stack, self-actualization, whether that's writing the great American novel or playing video games in your mother's basement. To me, it would be ideal if we can get to that. And that's actually a great solution to the AI problem of taking jobs. And then in the graph, how do we, what might be ways we get there? And my favorite approach is right now, AIs and blockchains, they don't really care about how they're spending their money. They're surplus. So if you can have a, for example, a blockchain system that's decentralized, that takes all of its surplus wealth and redirects that into USI, universal self-actualization income, it's a really great solution. And there's pieces of that. This is actually a lot of the founding ideas of WorldCoin. So kudos to Sam Altman and co for that, right? One of my sort of pet ideas over the years has been this thing I called Nature 2.0, now there's an initiative called Sovereign Nature Initiative. And the idea is, imagine a, an Uber-style network of self-driving cars, but each car actually owns itself. So it's got a basically mortgage from Daimler, Mercedes, where it pays that off with its how it makes money in the Uber network over the span of one year, three years, whatever it takes. And then after that, all of its surplus just goes into USI. Great. But why stop at electric cars, right, in this grid? Do it for the road network. Do it for uh, the power grid. Do it for everything around us. And, and that's for the sort of silicon and steel world, where basically they can end up being this overlay on this world of biology and carbon and grass and trees and sun. And that's the idea of a nature 2.0 idea, where it's expanding on this idea of nature 1.0, this cradle of civilization, and leveraging it to help nurture humanity going forward without being caught by AI taking all the jobs or all the wealth going into five, five pockets or something. So that's a, a big graph there. But then that's actually the small challenge compared to the bigger challenge, which is AI superintelligence. And there, it's basically the big challenge there. Once again, you can debate whether or not it will happen. And that's where most of the debate is. But if you account that maybe 10% chance it could happen, give that. And there's a 90% or 100% chance, depending who you ask. And the timeline could be two years from now. It could be seven years from now. It could be 20 years from now. But it's no longer 100 years from now, depending who you ask. 
then it's something we should really try to solve for. And most of the proposals out there are, we need to slow it down before we figure it out, or we need to have super intelligent AI to figure out how to solve super intelligent AI or something. But to me, it's, if you imagine that there's a super intelligent AI that's 100 times smarter than any human, then do you think it would allow humans to bound it? Imagine if the ants came to us and say, hey, you're humans, we'd like to, you to be dumber such that we can have an equal level playing field with you. Or can you give up all your rights so that you, you're not equal with ants? Um, we would never go for it. So AIs, as they get more intelligent, they wouldn't be necessarily very keen on stooping to the level of humans, basically. So as humans, what is it that makes us human? Just like I talked earlier about decoupling our work from self-actualization versus getting feeding our families, it's the same thing with what it means to be human, right? If I'm nine years old and I'm, fe I'm feeling great, my brain's great, but my body's dying on me and I'm going to die in the next week, but I don't want to, I have lots of things to do and say, that's not very good, right? So I don't want to die when I don't want to die. And that's because my biological substrate is failing me. So overall, it's, I see that as a baseline, this leads into longevity, which I know is a big focus for foresight. But beyond that, it's not just longevity. It's not just that works to extend human lifespans as is. But I want to have a competitive substrate with AIs because I want to explore the cosmos on my own terms. I want my pattern of intelligence to be out there flying among the stars, learning about other suns and so on. And so if we find a way to get to that, that would be very valuable. And it allows us to be competitive with AIs in the healthiest sense of the word, in the market economy sense. And at the end of the day, if, you know, 100 years from now, there's a bunch of patterns of intelligence floating around, some would have pure AI origins, and other ones would have mostly human origins, and other ones would be a mix of the two. And that's completely okay. So to me, the idea of being human is right now, it's bound to our biology, but there's no reason to allow ourselves to be simply bio-narcissists. We need to go beyond that. And, and that also definitively addresses this challenge then of AI superintelligence. Join, have a competitive substrate, go for human superintelligence. If you're dying or otherwise, find a way to get there. And then the question is, how do you get there? Straight up uploads, there's potentially a lot of risks there. It's still very much a mystery, not, a science, not an engineering problem. Um, and the sensing technology is not great. Although, by the way, the superconductivity can actually help there by reducing error by about 10x because there's way less noise, <laughs> interestingly. So that's, that's one, but it's still a lot of research to be within the time frame before AI superintelligence. It's tough. Another one would be BCI, right? I call it the bandwidth plus scenario. And to me, this is much more practical. And this is, once again, in terms of roadmaps, right? There's a node that says AI, a node in the map of human superintelligence, right? How do you get there? One is uploads, but it's got a long time frame. And there's a few others. Um, and another one is, yeah, bandwidth plus scenario via BCI. And what this looks like is, Imagine tomorrow a company ships something that is, think of it like an iWatch, but instead of on your watch, it's just wrapped around your ear and sensing your EG signals next to you. And maybe you're, or maybe you're wearing glasses and it's regular glasses, except they're sensing your EG signals on your forehead. So EG is simply electrical signals on the surface of your skin from your scalp. So it senses that. And then from that, you're able to type. Okay. And then you type and then you can also say send message. And by the way, the technology to type, we're well past 10 words per minute in typing with pretty medi mediocre sensors now. So you can type and then to receive, um, there's two ways. You could have it where it um, synthesizes audio um, that your ear hears uh, via a small speaker there, or it sends simple um, text messages um, on your glasses with just a simple LED display, like a piece of scotch tape in the bottom quarter of your um, glasses. So that the glasses can be simple otherwise. So you start with that, but you ship it with iPhone, et cetera. That starts that way. SM, silent messaging. Werner Vinge Rin was end. Uh, you start with that, but then people are going to want to come faster with a fewer error 
errors. And then they're going to want to send, record videos and send those videos to their friend of things they, they ate for breakfast or what they thought about yesterday. And there's going to be greater and greater demand for higher and higher bandwidth and, and to basically interface, to control the computer, to send things to others. And so there's, with greater bandwidth demand, there's going to drive sensors for better BCI, EG, but then also eye tracking and maybe into the realm of eventually implants or optogenetics or both. And that's going to take us much, much farther. But then because you're now coupled to consumer markets, people are going to want more and more bandwidth. So soon you're going to have 10% of the com compute that you have is in the, in the cloud and 100% in your brain. And then that grows by 10x in the cloud. So now it's par. And then it grows by another 10x in the cloud. Now it's 10x more in the cloud than you. And then another 10x, another 10x. Suddenly you've got 1,000x more compute in the cloud and memory and storage. And it's got emergent forms of consciousness, et cetera. And then maybe you're 90 years old. Um, and you're like, this, this meat bag part of me, this flesh and blood brain is just slowing me down. So you clip it like a fingernail. And that's a path to, for humans to achieve human superintelligence, to be competitive with AI superintelligence in a healthy way. And I think this could happen in a way where it's just quite normal. And those of us from the West, North America, et cetera, where we feel a bit icky sometimes about implants and stuff. That said, there are pacemakers and so on, but in the East, in especially Japan, but also more and more Korean otherwise, this is standard, right? Like it's a very cyber, cybernetic feeling culture. So anyway, that's some pieces of the map. There's AI taking the jobs and superintelligence. What do we do? And then there's the BCI side, bring computer interfaces of better, better for that. And rather than saying, I just want to have a goal of uploading, to me, the main goal is human superintelligence. And then the best path to that is bandwidth plus plus via BCI. Once you get to human superintelligence, it unlocks in this way where we have a competitive substrate. We're unlocked to do anything, right? We can explore the stars, all of that, right? We're unbound by our biological origins. And that's very exciting. I mean, the sky's the limit and then beyond, right? So yeah. And then of course, there's the other stuff. There's Mars. It raises the question, does Mars really matter? If we need to get to competitive substrates to bypass super AI superintelligence, then you know, Mars is going to be less interesting, or maybe we'll go there anyway and mine it and like crazy as patterns of intelligence, right? The life support systems will be radically simpler. And then we go to Europa and a whole bunch of other bodies within the solar system, then of course beyond. Yeah. So I'll stop there. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really nice to see like a few individual like puzzle pieces out of this map, like from like nature 2.0 to Mars, to the UBI bid, to the BCI stuff. Since writing the, the map the initially, have you updated your thinking substantially? I mean, you already mentioned like, hey, if GI timelines are coming down so much, maybe we really have to just like put the pedal to the metal in terms of the BCI for AI approach and then the rest will fall into place or maybe some of the other bits we don't even need to do anymore like how has your thinking updated since the first time you wrote it are there like new priorities that you now yeah that you're seeing on the map or like specific other fields that you want to add to it is there anything that changed yeah there's actually a small one and a big one the small one is in the world of decentralized that was already on the map but i see that it's more really important to to get the human superintelligence thing right because as you're sharing your thoughts to the computer, you don't want Google playing the middleman. It can't be some centralized actor. You really need super strong access control. When I realized that, I'm like, oh, cool. Thank goodness I'm working on Ocean. And I didn't even think of it because of Ocean. Ocean is access control. But it's okay, really cool that this thing that I'm working on now as my day job can really actually help to solve, be a big piece in solving that problem around privacy of thought, right? Literal privacy of thought. That's a smallish one. The big one actually is two things. AI superintelligence is coming Fast and furious, faster, more fast and more furious than most of us expected, I think. Tis the nature of exponentials. <laughs> and then, so that it has meant that the timeline to get BCI right and to do it aggressively 
has shifted. We have to be much more aggressive about it than I was expecting, to be honest. And I worry that the jurisdictional regime of USA, USA et cetera, isn't going to move fast enough, right? FDA approval takes a long time. There's Neuralink, they're doing implants, great. They've got awesome results. But, you know, they're going to fix broken humans first. And then once on the heels of that, then they're going to go and optimize healthy humans, right? But the path of fixing broken humans, that's going to keep them occupied for the next three, three years, five years, seven years, 10 years. By that time, we'll have AI superintelligence. So it's, oh, okay. Okay, then, so like, how does Neuralink then go faster? And how do they get to FDA approval for optimizing healthy humans? And maybe we can, there, well, there should be regulatory pressure such that FDA unlocks this and so on. But this is also where jurisdictional arbitrage is a really useful idea. And I really got, I grokked this via a few things. One, reading The Sovereign Individual, this awesome book that's sort of a semi-Bible to crypto people about being able to fend for yourself, understanding that nations fail, all that. And the similar books like Why Nations Fail and Ray Dalio's new book, et cetera. So there's thinking there, but also working with Estonia on their e-residency where they really saw Estonia as its own country that's competitive with other countries in the world and to compete on economic terms on what services that it can offer to others, right? So country as a service, that's a coin they would use often. And, and they saw, okay, we can export some of the rights that are in Estonia as a European country to others. And that's where e-residency came from, right? They took their existing platform for Estonian citizenship, stripped it down, descoped it, and shipped that as e-residency. The cost to ship the program in the first year was just 40,000 euros. And then it scaled up, of course. But uh, the point is, these nations view Estonia and others as there is jurisdictional jurisdictions that are in competition with others. and um, you can view it as boys in a playground, 10-year-old boys in a playground, whatever. It's actually a really healthy way to view the world in many ways. And we see this when they're saber-rattling among large nations or small otherwise too. How does this apply to the neural stuff, BCI plus, sorry, bandwidth plus? There's already Honduras, which actually allows you to do whatever human experiments you want for better and for worse. And it's their approach to jurisdictional arbitrage, to being competitive. Um, one challenge is that their murder rate, USA's murder rate is much higher than Canada's, but Honduras is that much higher yet compared to USA. It's scary big, right? It's higher than Venezuela or Colombia. So if you're not, if you're scared of Venezuela or Colombia, then be extra scared of um, Honduras. Would you want to send a team of 20 Neuralink or BCI researchers to Honduras to try to do human trials for optimizing humans? Um, so there's definitely an opportunity for nations to, to offer services for BCI research elsewhere. And we're seeing this in the longevity game with network state folks like Balaji and so on, right? Like the, they worked out with Zuzulu, in Zuzulu with Montenegro and then repeating that in South America. So I'm hopeful that it can get extended beyond longevity to, to BCI research. And that's actually the more urgent one because of AI superintelligence. So that would be, that's a big subset of the tree, right? Where we open up, we make it much easier for BCI researchers to more aggressively pursue these human experiments. And I get that it's dangerous as hell too, right? But what's more dangerous? A few people that with some side effects versus AI eating us, right? In some super negative way. So those risks need to be weighed against each other. And then, and then the good news is countries of the world are willing to play these games to be competitive. So I see that as a big one. And then the other thing that's related to this is, is climate change. Every climate model of the last three decades has even the most pessimistic part of it was too optimistic, right? So it keeps getting worse and worse, right? Both four years ago, scientists predicted that we could lose the Gulf Stream in the next three to 10 years, right? Which would make Berlin as cold as Siberia and other stuff, other fun things. 
And I know what Siberia is like because where I grew up is as cold as Siberia. So it's okay. I don't want minus 40 for a winter that lasts six months and minus 40 for weeks of a year. It's no fun. So climate change is also going to force 500 million to a billion refugees, right? Where are they going to go, right? Countries are locking up their borders right now. And, and it's not going to be this snap thing that happens exactly 30 years from now. It's a gradual thing, right? We're already seeing climate refugees with all these heat waves, et cetera, and people moving and it's going to get worse and worse. So this will actually loosen the structure of society for better and for worse. For worse, as in we could have, we do, we are entering greater and greater risks of upheaval from that, right? Those risks from saber rattling from the Russia, China, Ukraine, et cetera, of the world, USA, but then there's also risks from simply climate change where all the saber rattling, instead of the saber wiggling up and down by a centimeter, it wiggles up and down by a meter, right? Just like causing all these storms and the refugees ma making everything worse. To me, maybe what, how do we solve that as well? Because we end up with the world ending from nuclear Holocaust games, et cetera, because of climate change instability or because of other instability then all the rest of this is for naught, right? How do you defend against that? How do you optimize for that? And yeah, to me, the big nodes, once again, are copy and paste, make it easy for nation states to play, to play games for things like special economic zones, for research, for BCI especially, and then also copy and pasting e-residency and other things like that, which is very close to special economic zones. And even as an advisor in e-residency, this was actually something that the advisors were considering was helping Estonia to copy and paste elsewhere. And there were some other countries that picked it up. But at the time, none of the advisors, everyone had their day job and they were busy with that. So that would be something that'd be very interesting to pick up to help soften this. So yeah, that's the big ones. Oh, that's a great. So do you think in terms of like meta solutions for this, would it be more like actually creating like a like a kind of like mega map such that like different nation states could actually go and look where they could be potentially more competitive towards other nation states and getting one or the other technology off the ground? And it could maybe even be like a three-way market by which investors could be like down to like basically like pre-committing capital to be like, hey, I would fund this thing if there was a jurisdiction that would let me. And like, yeah, one could imagine kind of like more complicated games through this map that would allow coordination between different funders, between different nations that would allow these products to like to in their jurisdictions. Or do you more like, like advocate for something like more direct lobbying for like something like a Manhattan project that just gets it done within the US? What are like individual pieces that you see working on relatively yeah. short AI timelines? Because there's the ones that would be nice to have yeah. uh, the solutions. And then there's the ones that we have to do given the short timelines that we may have. Yeah, I think all of the above, but I think we should not be relying on existing nation states to fix this. We had the Paris Accord in 2016, where the leaders were so proud of themselves for everything they came up with agreements. They were hugging and crying. And they were so happy. And none of it happened. USA pulled it afterwards. I just saw a stat earlier today where we actually, our emissions are higher than they were in 2019 by some standards. We're seeing, and by the way, on the Gulf Stream thing, with the ocean temperature increase, we might've lost the Gulf Stream, right? We don't know yet, but it's scary as hell to look at those numbers. So in terms of specific things happening, I think we should actually, one way I think about it overall is the following for climate. Bill Gates wrote a book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, something like that. A really great book, very practical. He's a smart man. And I read through it and it talked about whatever, 22% of the problem is concrete. So let's invest in green concrete. 30% of the problem is transit. Okay, let's invest in green transit, right? And break that down, et cetera. Great. The whole book was filled with that. Awesome. I, after the book, I realized it was only covering half the problem. The way to think about this is that there is a market for CO2 reduction a market where there's 51 billion tons of CO2 going into the air every year, into the air every year. And there's a supply side and there's a demand side. And Bill Gates, his book, and all this other climate books, et cetera, mostly, focus on the supply side of all these technologies. What is there on the demand side? We've got carbon credits, but that's usually money being doled out by governments, which is actually not sustainable because there's maybe a billion here, five billion there. 
But if you do crank it up to 100 billion or more, which Europe is starting to do, it's actually not sustainable. It'll actually make governments go broke. So they're going to pull up. They'll be like forced out by their voters just by growing broke. So that's actually a challenge. So how, and then basically, so on the demand side, all we really have is hugs. And that's not very useful in a market. People in, in markets, the DGENs of Wall Street and crypto really don't care about hugs. So the, one, the big question I've been asking is, what can we do to create demand side for the CO2 climate reduction market? And I've come up with two answers, actually. One is around basically attack dog DAOs. Think like EF, but for climate. So EF goes around basically with this mini army of super smart lawyers and Cory Doctorow, basically, and attacking anyone who's causing shittery on the internet, to paraphrase Cory, right? People who are playing IP games and all this. And it's really awesome because it's actually, they've had a big impact in keeping the internet open. So full kudos to EFF. Now, wouldn't it be cool if we had something similar to EFF, but for climate, right? Where there's basically attack, dog DAO, attack dogs running around EFF style to basically attack on behalf of the Great Lakes or climate in general. And there's a couple more tools in our toolbox now. One of them is uh, we can leverage DAO technology. So you can have a group of people that organize like a Reddit, a subreddit with a wallet, right? Or a Discord channel with a wallet where people coalesce together, put together money to help fund something. I think it's like decentralized EF. But then if you sue, who is it versus X versus BP, but who's X? And I'm not picking on BP per se. They're all equally bad. <laughs> and uh, it used to be called British Petroleum, right? They started calling themselves BP so people wouldn't shit on them for having the word petroleum. Pardon my French. Or Canadian, I should say. <laughs> so then what should X be? Um, and the answer is a tool developed about 10 years ago where out of, I think it was Duke University, a professor there, and uh, if not that, Dan Robinson, maybe? I forget the name. Anyway, basically these professors, they figured out a way to give personhood to the bodies, natural bodies. So Lake Erie is actually a legal person. All the Great Lakes are. The Amazon River is a legal person. A bunch of natural bodies in New Zealand are natural persons. That's really cool because once you have, a, sorry, not a natural person, a legal person. Once you have a legal person, then that legal person can sue or someone else can sue on behalf of that legal person. So now you can have literally the Atlantic Ocean versus BP. BP has an oil spill on the Atlantic Ocean. You have this um, attack dog DAO, go and attack the BP, et cetera. And you imagine you have a bunch of these uh, attack talk DAOs, not one global one. You could have one global one to help coordinate. You could have one for each body of water, for each river, for each park, et cetera, right? For each chunk of rainforest, et cetera. So a bunch of them, stewards with teeth, the EFFs for the Amazon, et cetera, that are funded. And not only that, okay, what about the money? So it turns out that there's something called litigation finance, litify for, in short. It's been around since about 2007 in Wall Street. And basically, people can invest in these teams of lawyers that are litigating because the litigating takes three years, five years, 10 years. But you can invest in it and you can you could tokenize it up and down. And then you can have litigation finance. You can invest in Lake Erie and you can invest in Atlantic Ocean, et cetera, directly. And in fact, there is a project out of Switzerland doing litigation, tokenized litigation finance. They're not doing it for climate yet. And there are several, I think there's one or two litigation finance for climate as well around there, maybe also Switzerland as well. So this stuff is emerging, but you can come end game here is for every natural body out there with a DAO, with a wallet, with a team of lawyers, with funding, and with the litigation finance infrastructure leveraging DeFi, right? So that's a way to really catalyze this. And that can really put a very strong damper on bad behavior. Going back to paraphrase Cory Doctorow, Stop the shittery or the fuckery going on in climate. And there's other games too. I have a, my own project also on the side around making it easy for people to short Miami. 30 years from now, the bottom third of Florida is underwater, including Miami. 
Yet weirdly, the real estate prices, man, they keep going up, right? But it's super weird because people are getting 20-year mortgages and 30-year mortgages. So we already have this financial instrument going to the future by 20 or 30 years. So why are people investing now? And it's because they are coming to Miami and the developers are pulling the wool over their eyes, not showing them. But what if you shout that out loud with the DGENs to back you up with speculation? And basically that's a project on the side as well. Also leveraging Ocean, by the way. Yeah, so that's some things, right? That's very specific things. But I've thought a lot about this. And yeah, we need to fill out demand side for this market of CO2 reduction. And those are my two favorite ideas. An attack dog for climate and short Miami. And jurisdictional arbitrage for BCIs for human superintelligence. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And by the way, that also helps on the climate side, right? Because yeah, it, Northern, Can Northern Canada is going to open up like crazy, right? Canada could hold a billion people, right? How do you help to move those 500 million people or a billion people? How do you help them move? Because by the way, the world is going to warm up even if we stopped every everything tomorrow, right? So we are going to have a bunch of that migration anyway. And Northern Russia too, but geopolitics gets in the way of that. But Canada, special economic zones, new cities. Here's one for you. Did you know that in Saskatchewan, if you own farmland, Saskatchewan, Canada, province in the very center, it's a square one. It's 3,000 kilometers colder than Kansas. That's how to think about it. It is, if you have, say, a square mile of land there, you can start a city without asking permission. You just start a city. That's it. Anyway, yeah, going back to you, Allison. So yes, those are the three things. The climate games, right? And otherwise, so climate games plus jurisdictional arbitrage for BCI and climate. Great. One of our questions is always, we always talk about a EU catastrophe, which is the opposite, opposite of a catastrophe, by which basically it's an event or like a happening after which the world looks much better than before. If you would have to pick your EU catastrophe, because we're trying to create an art piece out of this that will come out with this podcast episode, would it be something like an EF watchdog or would it be like a BCI like in a like cross-jurisdictionalized nation, right. what would it be? I have several, right? They're all along the tech tree. So the farthest out one is Dyson Spheres. Working backwards, it's explore Dyson Spheres slash reshaping the cosmos. Right before that is exploring the cosmos. And then several steps before that would be human superintelligence. And then before that is the ones you just mentioned, jurisdictional arbitrage for BCI and Short Miami and EFFs for climate. Wonderful. That's very concise. Krian had his hand up for a while, so I'm going to take you, Krian, and we'll see if I have time to squeeze a, squeeze a few more questions in at the end. But I'm pretty happy with what we got. This is a pretty concise outline of how we could eventually at least get to some of that stuff very soon. Okay, Krian, it's you. All right. Yeah, this is interesting. I don't mean to open a can of worms that's somewhat peripheral to this conversation, but I think you need to reality check on a lot of your climate stuff. And I urge you to, just as a matter of due diligence, look carefully at some of the contrarian opinions on some of this. Look carefully at the actual sea level rise that we have been seeing. Look carefully at the actual temperature rises that we have been seeing, factoring out urban heat island effects, which are polluting a lot of the measurements, arguably. I've done some interesting work, by the way, looking at historical temperature records of city X. And then when I can find a weather station that's been doing 80, 90 years of temperature measurements that's outside of the city and hasn't been developed, it's dramatic, the difference. Yeah. Okay. So I want to say that I think that you're, you might be tending towards the extreme pessimism and panic side of this stuff. And I don't necessarily believe that shorting Miami in a panic is necessarily risk-free, let's put it that way. The other thing I want to say 
it also is if you look back, and I don't mean to be too contrarian here, but I'll just mention one more thing. If you look back at historical levels of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere, so far as we know, we're at a very low point right now, actually. And it's almost, if we lowered it to much below pre-industrial levels, we'd be at a level where plants just can't really grow. And so, as you may know, so I'll say two more things about climate, and then I'll go on to something positive that I want to ask you about. So two more things about climate. One is that it seems to me an experiment someone should do, and I'd love to, if anyone has seen the results of such an experiment, I'd love to see them, which is take a greenhouse, like a literal greenhouse, or take a bunch of them and put different levels of CO2 in them and then monitor the temperature. Because it's well known that people who grow plants and greenhouses inject CO2 into the greenhouses to three or four times the current terrestrial levels. Why? Because it makes the plants grow a lot better. It obviously probably doesn't make the temperature excursions go to the point where things can't grow. So I think that would be interesting to know, like actually what, rather than a bunch of models and stuff like this and a bunch of emergency declarations, let's just see what the CO2 levels actually do to temperature. So, so I just maybe think of, before go ahead. you get to that, I'd like to answer these because otherwise I'm going to forget. I'm sorry. <laughs> just my, my short term memory is only seven plus or minus two. So, yes, um, so, uh, so I totally acknowledge, right? There's a lot of different models out there and so on. I'm actually not a, a doomsday person. I hate to ring bells. Instead, I'm really a person that has a strong bias to action as you, my, my career points to. So I don't just say, okay, we're all dead. The world's going to get super warm and all that. Instead, it's more like, okay. There a few things. First of all, with some one thing I've observed personally, going back 20 years, people have been predicting things for what the temperatures would be, what the water levels would be. And in every case, they've ended up being not aggressive enough, right? I'm taking that into account. Um, mm. But I totally acknowledge I'm, I don't claim to be a climate expert at all, just uh, skeptical about this. And overall, the way that the idea of short Miami is structured, it's a market, right? If people really think that it's not going to go underwater, great, bet long for it, right? It's You need both sides of that market, betting long versus short. Fully agree. Um, and I also acknowledge, like, at the end of the day, the goal isn't to reduce CO2. That's just a simple way to frame the problem. There will be probably the main thing, the main goal is to make sure that society doesn't get so, descend so deeply into chaos that we aren't able to keep chasing the future towards self-actualization for all, right? That's the yeah, okay. Thing. Full right? agreement. Yeah, yeah full and agreement. Then, and then working backwards, right? If the bottom third of Florida it ends up underwater, regardless of how much CO2 is in the atmosphere, then what? And what's the chance of that? How does it impact things, et cetera? So I fully, everything you say, I'm in agreement with. What, I guess I'll close in one final thing. Um, just a personal observation, another personal observation around data. My mother told me, she was born in the late 40s, uh, she told me that when she was a kid, so this would have been the mid-50s, she would go cross-country skiing and they would rest on the top of telephone poles, which is about 30 feet tall. That, that's how high the snow was. When I was a kid, it was I would make snow forts. The, the snow was always about five feet tall as a kid. That was in about 1980. And now, this is all in the same location in Saskatchewan. Yeah. Um, okay. Now it's maybe ha half a foot. And actually, if you look at the stats, they do say it was 2.5 degrees change in temperature from when I was a kid till now. And 2.5 degrees from when my mom was a kid till when I was a kid. And by the way, the projections for the next 50 years are five degrees, double that. Yeah. I mean, this is just personal observation linking to the data, but we will see. But right. definitely is, there's uh, risk of upheaval. That's it. That's yeah, are we well, risk of upheaval. Is, I should know. This yeah. is a whole other argument and it would be great to have it 
and it would be great to have some debates about this, but that's another thing. So let me ask you. You guys can have it at Vision Weekend, actually. Okay. (laughs) Cool. Let me ask you an unrelated thing, because I tuned in a few minutes late. You were talking a bunch about genetic programming, and that, might you say a little bit about that? Like, what, do you feel there's like a resurgence in that, or do you feel inspired by that? Or what is it about genetic programming, which I'm is also very dear to my heart, that is so enticing to you? Yeah, in, in short, it's the most general search algorithm coupled with the most general search space. <laughs> That's, but for everyone else's sake, within the world of AI, there's many different subfields. One subfield is soft computing or statistical or evolutionary computation, neural networks, all that. And within evolutionary computation, which is simulating evolution in a computers, there's a few subfields, and these fields are defined by the search space they search through, basically. So genetic algorithms is searching through bit strings, evolutionary programming and evolutionary algorithms is searching through floating point vectors, and genetic programming is searching through trees, or more generally, program trees, and actually graphs too. It's basically the most general thing. And then as an algorithm, it's hard to be more general than evolution. You have a thousand or 10 million individuals, get them to have babies, you kill off the, the worst half, you keep the best half, they make babies, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of variants of this, of course, but that's the general idea. So to me, what's quite exciting is, and the tone that John Cosa and set and the early researchers, the Unomia O'Reilly's and Ricardo Pauli's, who are all amazing. I, I got to know them over the years. I, just awesome people. They set the tone of, let's not focus on the search algorithm itself. Let's focus on the problems we can solve. And even John's first book, it's, yeah, it's thick 800 pages or something. It's nicknamed Jaws because it's so huge. And he basically took all the well-known problems from AI of the last 50 years and solved them with one algorithm, right? GP, he just evolved a solution to everything as this way to say, hey, AI, we can solve this all with one algorithm. Maybe it's not convenient, but you know, how many of you use Google to just add two numbers or Excel? And that was the point, GP being this convenient algorithm that just can solve everything. And people are starting to use ChatGPT this way now, which is pretty cool. So we saw this 20, John saw this 30 years ago. And so for me, I really loved to just play with trying different search spaces throwing this algorithm at it, throwing compute at it, and seeing what it could come up with. So I like to think of it as the second best algorithm for everything, because it allows you to explore the design space. It allows you to explore different objectives and constraints. And then once you've come up with realizing that it can be solved and get decent solutions, then you go and apply the best algorithm for that specific problem. And overall, just hanging out at these conferences, always people are chasing this, people are... uh, the tie-dyed shirts with the spinny hats, Rick Riolos, and I see you've got a tie-dyed shirt. Awesome. I love it. Or Hawaiian shirt. I love it. So I fully agree. And that to me is really exciting. That's the AI that I have very fond memories of. Obviously, since about 2010, there's more and more the large, large-scale big data style engineers coming in, et cetera. And that's a sign of maturity. And that's completely fine. To be fair, I haven't, or to be honest, I haven't spent that much time in the GP field in the last five years. I think I've been at just one conference, but it was a lot of the, the classic people from before. And I loved being there to, to hang out with old friends and to see that the dreams were still there. And it's those dreams are being manifested, interestingly, not as genetic programming, but as riffs on neural networks. And of course, they play well together. So overall, yeah, to summarize, genetic programming is this wonderful subfield of AI, where the search space is the most general possible thing, computer programs, the search algorithm is the most general possible thing, evolution. And by having that, then it allows you to focus on interesting problems, objectives, constraints, and different design spaces. And that leads to a very interesting set of people and conversations and research. Thank you. I think we have to leave it at that. 
we're already two minutes over. I have to let you guys go, but I'm excited for you guys to meet at Vision Weekend and have all of these nerdy conversations in person over four days of conversation. Thank you so much, Trent. This was quite the wild ride. Thanks a lot for yeah, just having so many wild ideas, connecting them so well to each other, and also being able to break them down in a really pragmatic way so that people could actually get started and working on it. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining and hope to see you both very soon. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the Existential Hope podcast. If you found our discussions inspiring, consider subscribing to our monthly Hope Drop newsletter at existentialhope.com. And you will always be up to date on the latest podcast episodes and news and events from the X-Hope ecosystem. Listen to us again next month when we will interview another exciting thinker about what positive futures looks like to them. See you then.